We're going to begin reading Romans chapter 13 and verse 7. And if you're able to stand, let's stand together and read the scripture and then have another prayer. Now I'm going to refer back to this in a moment, but just in case you're not familiar with this, the first portion of Romans chapter 13 deals with the subject of our respect, the respect that is due to those in authority, including civil government. So Romans 13 begins with those words, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, and we'll refer to that in a moment. But let's begin reading in verse 7. Render therefore, therefore because of the things that the Lord has uh, used Paul to write, render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, or custom to whom custom, fear, fear being respect, honor, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, remember everybody their dues. Verse 8, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, referring to the law, he that loves another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou sh this is part of the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. A lot of ground to cover. We won't deal with all of it verse by verse and word by word, but we'll hopefully emphasize some things that will help us. And let's pray as we begin. Father, please bless. Again, we pray as we study your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us be receptive. Help us to take you seriously and take your word seriously and be fed by your word as it nourishes and strengthens us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, um, let me just begin by just um, making a few statements of summary. And one of them, of course, I'm, I'm thinking about our culture and how rapidly changing it is. And it's like our moral compass uh, is ever-changing and continues to decline. The older we are, as far as looking at our culture, the more obvious I think it is. But the America that many of us were born into is harder and harder to find. 
It just hardly exists, really. And the closest thing to it is what you're living. That is living in a rural setting, living in a Christian family, living with traditional values. And people look at us like we're weird or different, but in reality, this was normal 50, 60 years ago. I mean, this was the way almost everybody lived. Now, young, young people might find that hard to imagine, but uh, I mean, we've witnessed a lot in the traditional family. We've witnessed a lot in uh, just the, the fact that people attend church on a regular basis uh, is becoming less the norm. And those of us who, have, like I said, of my age or older, we've, you know, we can remember the assassinations of John Kennedy and Senator Robert Kennedy and, of course, Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. and legalized abortion, uh, the, the legal battles to take prayer out of the school. And all these things may seem like small, incidental, unimportant things, but they're all a part of what we're witnessing in our culture today. And then the wholesale education of humanism in our public schools. Who would have ever thought, you know, that, that the, the favorability of socialism would be so real in our world? You'd, I'd have never thought this 10 years ago. Sure, there, there were communists. Sure, there were socialists. But it would not have been considered mainstream. And it's also almost mainstream. These are these are great, radical changes. You know, we've gone from only two genders to maybe 50 genders or 70 genders or some people say 112 different genders. We've come a long way. I mean, that's just, that's just where we, that's, that's the world that we are living in, these radical cultural Changes And a part of that, not, not disassociated from it, but a part of that is the growing number of non-believers in our country. Nearly four of ten young Americans claim to have no faith at all. Now, that's, that ought to be troubling, you know, to all of us. Even people, you know, a lot of people who say they have faith aren't saved, according to the Bible, but these people claim to have no faith at all. I just read recently that among the young, younger people in, in our country, the largest adherents of beliefs are among these three groups, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus. Christ, tr Christianity is not even among the three most. That's the newly, new young people, the belief systems that they're putting their confidence in, and it's just shocking to me. I don't get over, I mean, I can't get over this. I saw this picture today of this young woman demonstrating, and she had this big old sign. I would say it's four foot by four foot or three foot by four foot. And the sign said in bold letters, going to hell and proud of it. I mean, you say, well, those are just isolated people. It's becoming more and more the norm, that sort of mentality. So here we are today. You know, and again, if you don't follow the news, it may be good for you. And I don't follow it as much as I could, but maybe more than I should. But these racial tensions are front and center. And by the way, racism is real. There are racists. There are racists among white people. I grew up in the South. And I understand what racism looks like. But I don't know, personally, I don't know a true racist. I don't know 
personally a white supremacist. I don't know anybody that believes that white people are inherently supreme to all other... I don't know... I know they exist. I'm just saying that I don't know them. But racism is on both sides of the aisle. You know, there's racism against people of color. There's racism against people of not color. And I'm not... This is not about racism. I'm just telling you, this is a part of part of the anger and the pent-up frustration and the godlessness that we see in our culture. We'll get to this in a moment, but godly people, spiritually-minded people are not racist. They're not. If a person is a racist, they have a spiritual problem. They have a moral problem, I think, they have a spiritual problem. This civil unrest, this is all introduction, these acts of what I call insurrection, it's, anti, it's anti-Americanism. It's not just anti-wipe, it's anti-law, it's anti-rule of law, it's anti-American way of life. They don't like America, they want a different America. They want to make another America unlike this country has been. And into that, of course, we have this lack of restraint and order and that's not really new. I saw today where our uh, attorney general here in Amer- Missouri, our Missouri attorney general, was venting because today every looter and rioter that has been arrested in St. Louis was turned loose today for no reason, just freed. Now, this, this ought to concern us all, right? We have a bad, we have a bad virus so they lock up business owners and turn prisoners loose. I mean, this, this is the new math we're, we're dealing with. And it's twisted, it's strange, it's bizarre. But in short, and I'm going to get now to Romans, we live in an America that's not improving morally, ethically. It's not getting better. It's not even holding its own. We're losing ground every day. So what... So what is the church to do? What are Christians to do? Now, I want to think a bit, before we get into Romans 13, is, is the text. I want to think about this, this place. The book of Romans was written to a group of people who lived. Here's your uh, quick your, uh, test for tonight. That lived in what city? <laughs> Obviously. They lived in Paris. They lived in Rome. Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, one of the strongest, greatest empires of all time, this was the the epicenter of the Roman Empire, the the seat of where these Roman leaders um, ruled. It was a large city. Perhaps as many as a million people lived there. It was a city known for its immorality. That's why when you have look at Romans 1, we're not going to turn to it. But remember Romans 1 where it talks about the depravity of people and their depravity of their understanding and how they, they just go from one twisted view to another until finally that God turns them over to a reprobate mind. He wrote that in Romans chapter 1 to these people. And the reason he wrote it to them is because that's the lifestyle many of them were living. They're, they were reprobate. Most of the inhabitants of Rome were polytheistic. That means they, have, they believe in more than one God. They, they, were, they were the majority of them influenced by Greek mythology. 
You know, you have all these different gods. They worship all these gods. Romans, Rome, Rome was like that. And because of all these things, they began persecuting Jews and Christians. And some of them were Jews who became Christians. Um, and this persecution began to increase. Matter of fact, um, Paul, hold your finger right here in Romans chapter 13 and go to the left to the book of Acts and Acts chapter 18, just a few pages to the left. And Luke records in the book of Acts chapter 18 about these Jews being banished from Rome. Acts 18, 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. So Paul is in Corinth, having left Athens, two cities on the southernmost part of what was now then called Achaia, Greece now. Verse 2, so Paul's there and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They just arrived here in Athens from Italy, in parentheses, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. So here it's a, it's a historical fact that Rome is banishing the Jewish population from Rome. It's a part of the persecution. And Claudius was then the emperor. And who... The, and then the next, the next one in line to be the ruler of the Roman Empire was Nero. How many of you ever heard of that name, Nero? Nero was the son of Claudius. And Nero is a ruthless dictator. He is known for taking uh, Christians and, and covering them in wax and lighting their bodies that... The, as torches, as human torches to light up the countryside in Rome. That's the Rome we're reading about right here. Ruthless dictators, persecuting Jews, persecuting Christians. And of course, this is where Paul made his exit from planet Earth when he was martyred, beheaded in Rome. So back to Romans 13. Here's the purpose of the introduction. It was to these believers in Rome, these churches in Rome, in the Rome we're talking about, the Rome where immorality is rampant, the Rome where um, Christians are being martyred and Jews are being driven from their country. Paul writes this letter to Rome. And what is his message? Romans chapter 13. Join me there if you would, please. What is his message? The first thing he wrote about in verses 1 through 6 was about their respect for governmental authority. Isn't that an amazing thing? He's writing to the Romans when people like Claudius and Nero are persecuting Christians, and he writes about the respect they should have for government authority. Now, I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to sit down and think about that for a bit. Ponder that. And he writes in here in Romans chapter 13, let's just look at a couple of verses because that's really not the primary purpose of this message. 
But he says in the last part of verse 1, the powers that be, talking about the positions of authority, they're ordained of God. Verse 2, whoever resists, whosoever resists, therefore resist the power, resisteth the ordinance or the order of God. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Verse 4, talking about those civil authorities, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bared not the sword in vain. And then he goes on, we read a moment ago in verse 7, rendered all their dues. So the, what is the purpose of civil government according to the Bible? And again, I'm not, I'm not going to really get into this too much, but it's the order and protection of society. That's the purpose of government. That they should be a minister to us, to protect us in those societies. Now, that, does, that mean, does that mean that, that uh, they, they have unlimited authority? And the answer to that is no. We have examples in the Bible. Most of you are familiar with them. Where when civil authorities said, we're commanding you, for instance, in the book of Acts, or as in the book of, about Daniel, we're commanding you not to pray in Acts, we're commanding you not to preach. When, when the civil government tells us to do something that God says do, or they tell us not to do something God says do, we have the biblical right to obey God and disobey authority. They don't have unlimited. By the way, no authority is unlimited. If a, if a husband and a father tries to get his children and his wife to do things that are indecent and immoral and against God, she's not obligated to follow that. If the pastor tries to get a church to do things that are against the Word of God, they're not obligated to follow that. There's no such thing as unlimited authority. The Bible does not teach blind loyalty. Our first obligation is to God, right? But God gave us the system of authority. So he writes to this church, he writes to this church in Rome that they need to keep the right attitude about authority. And that's a good reminder for all of us. But then, and this is what I want to spend our time tonight looking at, he wrote to them about loving their neighbors. In verse 8 he says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. In verse 9 he says, For this... Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, which is another way of saying lying. Thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, these things are commandments, and any other commandments is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's why Jesus said, you know, if you love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from him. If you love your neighbors yourself, you're not going to commit uh, immorality. If you love your husband or wife like you, you ought to, you're not going to, you're not going to be uh, immoral. You're not going to murder. You're not, going, you're not to covet. You're not, if you love your neighbors yourself, you're not going to lie to them. So he's talking about loving your neighbor. There's no place in the life of the Christian for hate. I'm not saying Christians don't hate. I'm just saying there's no place for it. Christ, there's none. If it's hating a race of people, hating someone that's hurt you, hating, some, hating the government, whoever it is, it should not exist. 
And this commandment about loving one another is found throughout the Bible. It's found numerous times in the Old Testament, loving your neighbor, loving God. It's obviously found here. It's found in many other places. Look in verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love will never ever, love will never mistreat another person. And what this verse is telling us, if you walk in love, it'll take care of all these things. It'll take care of all these things. You don't, even, you don't have to keep these things in your head and say, okay, I've got to remember this. I'm not going to lie. I can't lie. I can't steal. I can't be immoral. I've got to keep all these things. No, here's what you need to keep in your head. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself, and you'll never do those things. You'll never take something that belongs to you because you love. All these things, stealing and lying and adultery and murder are not the fruit of love. Last part of verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So all this stuff we're witnessing, racism and bigotry and rioting and vandalism and murdering, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many, I mean, I hated this man was killed last week. And it wasn't right. There's a lot about it we don't know. I'm sure there's a lot about it we don't know. But obviously something horribly wrong occurred, Right? Obviously. But it, I don't know, at least six cops have been murdered since then, killed since then. That's wrong too. There's nothing right about that. Murdering people, vandalism, tearing up st cities, destroying people's businesses. I mean, that's, there's nothing good about any of that. It's, not, it's the absence of love. All that hate is the absence of love. So Paul is writing to a, a, a church that is living in as probably as vile and wicked a society as we could imagine, maybe a lot like the society we're living in, maybe much worse. And, and he tells them, number one, you need to keep the right perspective about authority. The second thing I, I'm emphasizing is, he said, you need to learn to love your neighbors. And I don't think this is just talking about your Christian family. I'm talking about this would be people in your world, in your realm of influence. Love, learn to love people. Not in an emotional kind of love, but in a Christ-like kind of love. But then the third thing in this passage that I want to spend a few minutes talking about is he talked about the urgency of their Christian testimony in this world. There was a significant Christian uh, presence, even though they were persecuted, even though they were being, my wife and I have had an, a, 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 either an, one night or two nights we spent in Rome traveling from someplace we'd been over there in Europe coming home, went to the catacombs, went to the Colosseum, went to places known for Christians hiding out, being persecuted. There was a significant presence of Christians in Rome and Paul wrote to them about their, about their Christian testimony. Look in verse 11. And that knowing the time, after he talks about all these things that they should be having the right attitude about, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. This is not a time, he said, for slumbering. This is not a time for taking a nap. 
spiritually. We're not talking about physical sleep. We're talking about spiritually. He said it's time to wake up. It's not a time for lethargy. It's a time for alertness. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And I believe that salvation is referring to the coming of the Lord. We're closer now than we've ever been. Our deliverance is at hand. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And it's really, it's, it's like an, a warning. It's a wake-up call about the needs of the hour. I mean, if I lived in Rome, I'd be wanting to move to the suburbs, right? If I lived in St. Louis or New York, I'd be wanting to move to the suburbs. But he doesn't write to them about hiding out and hunkering down and bunkering down. He doesn't, he, you know what he says? He said, we need to wake up. There's a great need. There's a great need around us. And I, we see the need. We see the depravity of the human nature on display every day. But he says, we, we need to be aware of the needs of this hour. This is not a time for leisure. It's not a time, you know, for negligence. Put on, he says in verse 12, the armor of light. And then he says in verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting, and I'm not using that text because of all the rioting that's going on, but, but it has to do with riotous living and drunkenness, not in chambering, arguing, fighting, conflict, Wantonness means living in excess. Wantonness. It's not a time for just pleasure, pleasure seeking. It's not a time for just taking it easy. It's not a time for, a, for us to retire from serving the Lord, not in strife and envying. We need to get all this out of our life, all this strife and envying and carnality and wantonness and indulgence. Verse 14, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill their lust of it. It's really a call to live out the Christian life. And, and to me, this is a, just a good reminder for us tonight. That in this wicked day in which we live, we need to, to keep our bearings and why we're here. So what is our role? What is our role? Biblically, here's, this is an interesting thing, you know. If you lived in India, if you lived in China, if you lived in Peru, if, as a Christian, if you lived in the tundra of Alaska, wherever you live, biblically, your role would be no different, wherever you live. Now, we say there's hard places, there are difficult places, there are challenging times, there are more difficult times. But what Paul is saying is his, we're to keep doing what we know we're supposed to be doing. What are those? Really, you could summarize it in two, two commandments. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. But in the context of that, we're to be evangelizing the lost. You know, I don't, I don't pretend to know all the reasons for the great 
chaos and unrest and confusion primarily in our inner cities. But I'll know one of the reasons has to be that we failed in getting the gospel to those people in those places. Now, I'm not putting the blame on us necessarily. I'm just saying, people more than anything, people need the gospel. The gospel takes away hate. It does. It takes away jealousy. It takes away envy. And I realize that a lot of people who claim to be religious are the people out front, you know, pushing for these... Um, this unrest, civil unrest. But what do we need to be? We need to be evangelizing. That's what we need to be doing, evangelizing. Evangelize the lost. And this, by the way, if you love your neighbors, you're going to get the gospel to them. We're to be trying to reaching people, doing more for missions, trying to reach people. There are people trying to start churches in some of these inner cities. I tell you, we need them in a desperate way. And then discipling those that are saved and praying for revival. We need Revival. Nothing changes our job description. Now you may be sitting here and, and you're, you, know, you have a, a consistent walk with the Lord and you're faithful in witnessing to other people and you've never let it ebb no matter what the circumstances are and thank God for that grace. You may be here thinking, man, I'm just so afraid of the virus and afraid of people and afraid of everything. I'm just going to put my putting my spiritual life on hold. There's never a time to put your spiritual life on hold. Ever. Because, because the devil never stops. He's working overtime. Amen. I mean, he is. Working overtime. Destroying people's lives. What the world needs is the gospel. We don't need more government intrusion and government involvement. I'm glad for the purpose they serve, and I'll tell you, sometimes they serve a good purpose. I personally think they're serving a good purpose in trying to put down some of this, some of this nonsense. We don't, but we, government's not the answer. And certainly anarchy is not the answer. Anti-government is not the answer. You know, when you think about it, if we could just step back far enough and look at it, the escalation of evil should be an incentive for us to step up our game, wouldn't it? Because the, cl the clock is ticking. And, you know, we may hit a good spell and it may be have a lot of peace for the next six months or a year or two, but I'm telling you, the clock is ticking. And one of these days, the world is really going to come apart at the seams. You can believe that, right? It's what the Bible teaches but good can come out of this. You know, I was thinking today about the Civil War or the war between the states. That's one of the darkest times in our nation's history. You have to believe that. Family against family, friend against friend. Such division. And But if you were to, if you were to study this subject, if you were to Google this or study this subject, which you'll, one of the things you'll find out that maybe you didn't learn in history is that the, there was a great gospel movement among both the North and the South during the war between the states. And it's estimated, not by one or two people, it's estimated 
that as many as 150,000 were converted in the Union Army and as many as 150,000 were converted in the Confederate Army during the war between the states. Sometimes they spent entire days just preaching and singing and studying the Bible. In one of the darkest periods of American history, the point being, God can work even in dark times. America needs revival, right? America needs revival. And this is going to sound like I'm just being negative. And I know I'm just a chronically negative person. <laughs> but America may never be what it once was. Just being realistic. It may never be Little House on the Prairie again. <laughs> I'm not happy about that. There's no guarantee. We ought to face reality. You, you know those of you who little children? There are no guarantees that your children, if you could see what I've seen in the lifetime that I can remember, you would realize if nothing changes, there's no guarantee that your children and grandchildren are going to enjoy anything like the America that you and I have enjoyed. That may sound negative. I'm just being realistic. But whatever happens, our role is important. Our job is important. This church's ministry is vital to this community, to those that we support in our missionaries, and other churches like this that are preaching the gospel. Do I like what's happening? No. Could I, would I like to change it? Yes. But you can't change it, nor can I. We ought to pray for God to work, though. Right? But we also ought to be light. That was, I was thinking about that past. Let's turn to this. And we'll close with this. Go to... Go to the book of Philippians. I thought about this when I was praying earlier. And I just thought about it again. Philippians chapter 2. We'll read this and we'll be finished. Verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. All things without murmurings and disputings. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, Paul writes, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. In a, in a crooked and perverse nation. Talks about his world, but that's the way we live. That's where we live. What should we do? I could think of several things, but I'm not going to mention them. But we should let our lights shine in this world. We should let our lights shine in this world. Amen? Amen.